0: I'm Ann O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Auckland University Emeritus Psychology Professor and Rutherford Medal recipient Michael Kobalis has spent a career researching the human mind. In his new book, The Truth About Language, What It Is and Where It Came From, he takes on Noam Chomsky and Stephen Jay Gould to argue that language involved much earlier than generally assumed. He put his case to Susie Wiles. We hope you enjoy this session. Welcome everybody, good morning. So this is the truth about language. Uh, My name is Dr Susie Wiles, and I'm a scientist uh, and lecturer at the University of Auckland. So before I um, introduce the star of the show, there's some housekeeping things I have to do. Um, So the first is to ask you to double check that your phones are on silent, please. Uh, We don't want any phones ringing and interrupting us. Um, And yeah, you don't have to turn them off, because the festival would actually quite like you to be using social media to share your thoughts about the session. Um, Preferably only share them if they're nice. If you don't, just leave it. Nobody needs to know. Um, But do be considerate of your fellow audience members uh, when you're you're using your social media. Uh, I'm also asked to tell you that this is not um, an audience participation session from the very beginning. Uh, This is going to be sort of, we're calling it conversational. We'll see how we do. Um, We're going to do questions towards the end. So I will make sure that we've left plenty of time for your questions, all right? Um, Right, okay, so with that we will get started and I will introduce our star. So Professor Michael Corbelis is a psychologist, an author, and a creativity fellow, which we will also ask him a little bit more about later. Um, Michael is an emeritus professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Auckland. He has degrees in mathematics and psychology, although he started as an engineer, um, from what was the University of New Zealand time ago, Um, and he also has a PhD in psychology from McGill University, where he taught for ten years before returning to New Zealand and the University of Auckland, where he has been ever since. He's had a very long and successful career as a scientist, um, which continues to this day. In 2002, he was made an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. And last year, he won the Rutherford Medal from the Royal Society Te Aparangi, which which was for his foundational research on the nature and evolution of the human mind. He's written several books. His latest is The Truth About Language, which we will be talking about now, um, which was published this year by Auckland University Press. So please welcome Michael. So, I thought to set the scene, I would read um, a little bit of the preface for his book. Uh, Michael is a wonderful writer, and I think you get a real sense for his sense of humor in his, uh, in his book. Um, I'm not sure whether any, some of that might come across in the preface, but this is the bit that I thought we should, we should start with. Um, so, he writes language is the elephant in the room, the jewel in the crown, the ghost in the machine. It is perhaps the ultimate challenge for the social and biological sciences, since no one really understands how it works. Yet, barring disease or misadventure, we all possess it. Without language, there would be no stories, no religion, no science, no history. Some would say no consciousness, wrongly, I think, but that's a story for later. And yet, we are the only species that can communicate in that open-ended way that we call language. Filling our daily lives with talk and gossip, our libraries with books, our televisions with soap operas and excitable sports commentators, our parliaments with vacuous bickering <laughs> and self-important posturing. No, his, his sense of humour does come through. Uh, <laughs> our from computer screens with downloads of variable authenticity, our lecture halls with bespectacle wisdom, <laughs> not to mention the twittering of our smartphones. Strangely, though, we seem to take language for granted a gift bestowed on us for the privilege of being human. So as I say, he's a wonderful writer. So I think the best place to start uh, is with a definition of this um, elephant in the room. Um, Stephen Fry calls it a complimentary moist lemon-scented cleansing square, or a handy freshen up wipe <laughs> So Michael, would you like to start by defining language for us, please? Uh,
1: I don't think I can do it better than Stephen <laughs> Fry did it, actually. Um, l- language, I think, is simply a way of sharing what's in our minds or sharing the non-present. I think the important thing about language is that we can share with people things that are not right in front of you. Um, Whereas, as far as I can tell, all animal communication is really about the present. It's things like uh, mating calls or signals of danger or whatever, things that are in, in the present environment. So the challenge is to talk about or share things that are not in the present. And by that I mean the past, things that happened in the past that are not in front of you, things that might happen in the future, but perhaps more importantly stories, things that we've kind of made up that's in our imaginations and we want to get them across uh, to other people. So I think sharing is, is, is very important uh, as a, in a social species like ourselves. And the critical feature, I think, is that it's the non-present, talking about stuff that's in our minds but not, that is not in front of us. So
0: the other thing that you also, I guess, um, clarify in your book is that language is not just about speech, though.
1: Right. So there are many ways, of course, to share what's in our minds. Uh, We can do it with speech, Uh, we can do it on our little cell phones, we can Twitter it, Uh, and we can also sign it, because we now know, I think, that sign language is is just as much language as speech is. So um, the the challenge is, is to find a way to get what's in our minds across. And there are actually many ways to do that. And in a way, the history of the human species is, is a history of different ways of communicating. Uh, if you think about not just uh, signing and speech and gesturing, uh, if you think about the uh, invention of the computer. Uh, so in a way, we've been able to make enormous progress through sharing, through the variations in how language works.
0: So. In your book, the first truth that you write about are the origins of language, and this is something that you and uh, an American linguist called Noam Chomsky um, have got rather different ideas about. Um, so I guess, can you start by telling us maybe what those two hypotheses are and, uh, and the evidence for them?
1: Well, I want to say first of all that I, I, I'm sort of being billed as the person who's come to, to bury, bury Chomsky, but not to praise him. <laughs> uh, so, I'd just like to say a couple of things uh, in, in praise of Chomsky. Uh, he wrote a book um, almost exactly 60 years ago, in 1957, called Syntactic Structures, and that was about the structure of language. And it told us a lot of things about how language works, how it is structured, how a sentence works, like the sentence I'm producing now. And that was very influential. In fact, it changed the whole course of psychology. In, in amazing ways. Up until that point, the dominant theme in, in psychology uh, was behaviorism, and it was based nearly always on rats and pigeons. <laughs> and B.F. Skinner, the, the arch-behaviorist, uh, wrote a book in that same year, 1957, called Verbal Behavior. And that was his attempt to explain language in terms of what he knew about how rats press bars and pigeons press, key- pe- uh, press keys. Now. Chomsky pointed out that, that that was all wrong, really, that, that language is really a computational thing. Uh, so we can generate with computational principles uh, how language works, how sentences work. I mean, I'm making up a sentence right now that I don't believe I've ever said before, and I'm doing it with my computational expertise in my head. I don't believe I've ever said that sentence before, but I, uh, but, but I, but I probably have. So that's a bit <laughs> unlike sort of learning uh, sequences of, of events. So Chomsky was, I think, was very influential. Uh, he managed, like a pied piper, to pull all the rats and pigeons out of uh, psychology labs <laughs> and replace them with sort of semi-willing students. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, uh, he, that led to the idea that humans were completely different, unlike any other animal. So Chomsky has the idea that, that language was bestowed on humans and only humans. In his most recent writing, he said that this happened within the last 100,000 years, which is just an eye blink of time, in, in, even in, in hominin and in human evolution. So he even says that it was bestowed upon a single individual. Uh, uh, it's a bit of an exaggeration, even in his terms. But he called this individual Prometheus. Uh, it's very biblical. Remember that in the Bible, uh, language was given to, to Adam. Well, Chomsky bestowed it on this person he calls Prometheus. Is I don't know who he talked to, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, but, the, the but idea that this was sudden.
0: <laughs> so, but is Chomsky religious?
1: I don't believe so. Okay. No, I, I don't believe he really had, he may have had it in mind, but certainly not in writing, any connection with the biblical story. But it's got remarkable parallels. And it's the story that goes right through history, the history of philosophy and the history of religion, that this thing happened to humans and only humans. So, I mean, Descartes, for example, in the 17th century, thought that, um, that language proved free will. Precisely because we can, we can make sentences we've never made before. We have perfect freedom to construct these things. So right through history, uh, language has been regarded as something that only humans have, maybe that makes only humans conscious, makes only humans have free will. And I think Chomsky bought right into that uh, argument and still does. Now, of course, that's a great threat to the Darwinian theory of evolution which says that everything happened incrementally and gradually. So part of my, my my mission, if you like, is to try to explain how language might have come about through natural processes rather than through a miracle.
0: So let's talk about some of those natural processes then. Um, I guess where do you start? Or do you work your way backwards?
1: Well, I guess you have to... Well, you have to, you have to sort of work your way backwards, uh, starting with what language is, and then try to find out what... Uh, um, might exist in other species, particularly chimpanzees and and bonobos. I mean, we share a common ancestry six million years ago. And one of the tragedies, of course, is we really have nothing in between because we're a rather murderous species, I think. (laughs) So there have been something like uh, 20 different species of of hominin. That's the line that split from the chimpanzee line. Uh, And we're the only ones left. So there's no other kind of hominin, uh, Neanderthal, uh, um, Homo erectus, the various other, the Australopithecines, that we can can actually ask. So we have to try and figure out what happened in that gap. But we also, of course, have to look at, at great apes and monkeys and other animals to see if we can see where language might have come from. And one of the things that I think is critical to language is what I've like to call mental time travel, which I think we've mentioned already, but the ability to travel into the past and travel into the future, because that's what language is about. It's about uh, trying to explain what we did yesterday, what we might do tomorrow, or a story we might tell. So one of the, the challenges in the last 10 or 15 years, I guess, is to ask whether other animals have this thing called mental time travel, whether they can sort of mentally travel back into the past. It's hard to ask an animal that, especially if it doesn't (laughs) talk. But there's now, I think, quite good information, um, mainly from birds, oddly enough, that that can not only remember where they cached food, hid food for future reference, uh, but when they did it. And it also looks like some of their behaviour acts in advance of something that might happen in the future. So if a bird has cached a piece of food and it's another bird has watched it, it will change the cash later on because it thinks that the bird that watched it might steal it.
0: Yeah. Now, that
1: in a way is looking into the future. Uh, there's a wonderful. It's also
0: ch- a reflection on their behavior, I guess.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I mean, they're rather a dishonest uh, species. These are scrub jays, um, rather intelligent little birds. There's a wonderful chimpanzee in a zoo in Sweden. That, that stores up rocks and hides them in various places in the zoo and makes little pla- places to hide them in. And it does that because later on it's going to throw them at visitors. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so you might think that's, that's seeing a future event. <laughs> it, 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 so, so there's all sorts of things like that, but of course we are somewhat hamstrung because we really can't ask an animal through verbal means very well. The other thing that's come out recently that's a little more complex is that uh, neurophysiology. So we can actually record in the rat brain uh, that it, it replays past events in a maze. So the animal's put in a maze, and there are little um, neurons inside the brain that, that tells the animal exactly where it is in the maze. And the animal moves around, and these neurons, different ones, fire. Now, later on, when you take it out, It replays trajectories in the maze. So in other words, it's replaying the past. And it sometimes makes little trajectories that it hasn't yet done. And the guess is that it's actually planning something it might do. So it seems like even uh, non-human animals do have some sense of time, uh, past and present, possibly even imaginary things, but they can't communicate it. Uh, we can dig into their little brains and find evidence they're doing this, and we could look at their behaviour and it looks like they're doing it, uh, but we can't actually ask them. So what we seem to have developed over the last six million years in humans is the ability to share some of this stuff. I can tell you what I did yesterday, I can tell you what I did on my last trip to Europe. You'll be bored stiff, but I can do it. <laughs> uh, and I can tell you what I might do tomorrow. So that's... Um, The challenge is to explain how that came about. But I think the actual thought processes are not that novel. Chomsky thinks even the thought underlying language became symbolic about 50,000 or 100,000 years ago in a single move. So that suddenly we were able to think symbolically. And archaeologists call this the great leap forward or the human revolution. And sometimes they call it the Big Bang. So there was this idea that in our own species, within the last We've only been here for 200,000 years. You've probably forgotten that, but that's the amount of time that humans, as we understand it, have been on the planet. But even within that time, 100,000 years ago, the idea is that there was this Big Bang that gave us this whole new way of thinking symbolically. And so I think... Uh, I don't like that, because I don't, I don't think it fits with how Darwinian theory works. So I think what happened was gradually we built up the complexity of the ability to think about things that are not present, uh, but only in the last six million years or so have we invented ways to communicate it.
0: So the other thing that you say is a prerequisite um, for language is the theory of mind. So the access right. to what others are thinking and to what others are feeling. So I guess can you tell us a little bit about that and, and maybe again, so where do we sit in terms of the scrub jays and, and various things like that in, in that spectrum?
1: The theory of mind is, is difficult, the ability to imagine what other uh, people are thinking or other animals are thinking. Um, actually, animals are quite good at it in terms of empathy. Uh, Franz Duval, who's a quite a well-known biologist, behavioural biologist, has lots of examples of, of empathy in animals, understanding their feelings. I think somehow we've evolved that a little bit further so we can understand what other people are thinking not just how they feel, and perhaps understand their beliefs uh, and so forth. So I think that's very important to language because language is actually very crude. Uh, It it skims along the surface of thought, and I can't really communicate with somebody unless I know what they're thinking. So I kind of think I know what you're thinking now (laughs) in order to be able to sort of get the ideas across so that... Um, and that's th- quite
0: something, being in the dark as well.
1: There's a yeah, wonderful... There's in, in the book there, I think I have a, a record of a conversation I overheard in a pub in northern England. And I walked into the pub <laughs> and there were a number of old guys there and they were leaning against the bar. And one of them said, aye. And there was a, p- a period of silence and another one said, aye. <laughs> and there was a bit more silence and another one said, yep. <laughs> and then another one said, I And they were talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) So an awful lot of language is actually unstated. So what language does is a way of sort of priming people's minds and sort of sharing in that fashion. Um, So it's not... Language is very seldom explicit. Uh, Look at legal language (laughs) where they try to make it explicit and it's unreadable. So, So we need theory of mind in order to be able to communicate. We also, of course, the theory of mind allows us not only to travel in space and time, but it allows us to travel into other people's minds. And I think that's the essence of storytelling. Once you have the ability to travel in time and the ability to sort of go into somebody else's mind, you can tell stories from the points of view of other people. And that's that's actually very valuable because it sort of helps us understand how other people think. It helps us understand the social world. Uh, I've got a nice quote here in the book somewhere from Ian Rankin, who points out that the perfect uh, individual for, for sort of exploring social life is a detective. So and he mentioned this in his talk last night, that uh, uh, detective fiction is partly uh, fascinating for that reason, in that it takes you into all sorts of places you don't normally go and teaches you about the world. And the third ingredient, so that is mental travel in space and time, there's travel into other people's minds, but there's also a kind of randomness <laughs> which I like to call a mind wandering. So sometimes the stories we tell kind of uh, have a random component and that leads to the creativity of storytelling.
0: Actually, so that reminds me, um, if we go back to your uh, creativity fellow. Oh. What, what, what is that all about? Who, uh, who was it bespo- bestowed upon you Well, the
1: university, uh, for some reason, decided to make me the second university creativity fellow. This
0: is the University of Auckland?
1: The University okay. of Auckland.
0: Who was the first?
1: Uh, it was a, the, what happened was, that there was a, I've forgotten her name, but there was a woman who came out from the US who'd done brain imaging on creative people. And so the, everybody got very excited about creativity. Uh, and, and she was the first creativity fellow, and she was to go back to the U.S. and take more creativity, cre- creative people, stick them in a scanner and see what happened in their brains. And I don't actually think that happened. <laughs> uh, anyway, they decided they should have another creativity fellow. And it came about, uh, I think, because I wrote a book a few years ago called The Wandering Mind. And I made the terrible mistake of calling the final chapter The Creativity of the Wandering Mind. And somewhere in, in the administration, they picked up the word creativity, <laughs> so there I was. I was the creativity. A rather uncreative, by the way, creativity <laughs> fellow.
0: So actually, that leads <laughs> me to my next question. Um, so you've talked a little bit about the sort of storytelling and stuff, um, and, the, and this uh, sort of creativity. So do you have any plans to write uh, any um, fiction?
1: Well, I've, th- I've thought about it. I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'd be very good at it. <laughs> but Partly being an academic all my life, you feel compelled to reference everything. Yes. And one of the terrible things about <laughs> that book, it's got pages and pages and pages of, uh, of references because you don't feel comfortable as an academic unless mm-hmm. you've somehow got a, a reference to the literature and what, <laughs> what, you're, what you're trying to say. Somebody actually asked me why there were so many uh, references in the book, and I said, well, actually, it's because I'm old. <laughs>
0: OK, so actually, um, this, this, is a, this is a, comes a, more or less leads on, but it's a question from my daughter this morning. So when, uh, when they were asking, you know, when we were discussing what we were going to do today, and, and I revealed this is what I was doing today, um, she picked up your book. So we were asking, did she want to come? And we picked up your book, and she read the first sentence on the back cover. And so the first sentence is, um, while birds can chirp and monkeys can chatter, only humans possess the extraordinary power to tell stories. And she stopped there, it carries on, but she stopped there, and she was like, how does he know? What, <laughs> how does he know that birds aren't telling stories? So he <laughs> so goes, how do we know they're well, not telling first stories? First of all,
1: can I implore you, not to, if you buy the book, not to give it to your 10-year-old daughters? <laughs> Well, you know, we don't really know because we don't quite know. A bird song is a, is, is a really um, critical one in a way because birds have very complicated songs that go on and on. Uh, but they, they don't seem to have the variability that you would expect from a conversation. But perhaps they don't have much to talk about. I, I don't know. <laughs> I th- The assumption I think that I have is that they're, re- they're really talking about the present. They're advertising themselves as being there. They're having mating calls or whatever. Uh, so they're not probably, revealing what they did yesterday. But of course, I may be wrong, and I really don't know how we were going to find out. Mm. We know that in the hippocampus of the rat, this is what I was telling you a little while ago, that it's replaying a past event. Uh, but we only know that by putting an electrode in and, and, and figuring that out. So there's no evidence yet, I think, that any other species actually emits sounds or gestures that go back to something that it's done in the past or something that it's planning to do. Uh, So I'm I'm Chomsky insofar as I I don't think the birds are telling stories and I don't think it's language in that sense. Uh, But who knows? Maybe wrong. (laughs) Your daughter may be right.
0: (laughs) Okay. so speaking of stories, um, what's your favourite genre of stories?
1: Well... Um, I guess I, I'm kind of hooked on detective fiction, as, as mo- most people are. Partly, I, uh, when I try to justify it, I justify it in terms of what Ian Rankin said, <laughs> because it takes you into into places you might nother- otherwise never go. I did have a section in there which is probably very bad on romance fiction, because that is, uh, I think, the most popular fiction. I think there's one romance novel sold every six minutes or something. Um, so... Um, but I'm not sure that I got it right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think it, for me it has to be detective fiction, mm-hmm. partly because it's a kind of problem solving thing, I guess, and, and partly because it, it takes you into in interesting and different characters. And it also presumably teaches you how to do perform crimes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've led us on the story, we've talked a little bit about the, I guess, the. the Chomsky version of a, a divine intervention, maybe not a divine intervention, but an intervention of some sort. Um, we've talked a little bit about the mind wandering and the importance of storytelling. So I guess the, the final section of your book really covers um, sort of how, how language evolved to be this telling of stories. So I guess, can you tell us a little bit about the two kind of main ideas for how that happened? Where, it, where did it come from, I guess?
1: So what, in order to tell what's in your mind, you have to have an output system some way of, of generating in your behavior or the sounds that you make uh, a way of representing what's in your mind. Uh, so of course, you have to have ways of representing the different concepts in your mind, the names of people and things and places and so forth. Uh, so, But you need a system to do that. And I think the natural way that system emerged is through gesture, uh, through bodily movement. So the other thing that I try to push in the book is the idea that language began as a gestural system. Uh, Possibly, initially, as a kind of pantomime. So if you want to explain to somebody what you did yesterday, you pantomime it. Um, And that probably then also comes a kind of manual system. Because one thing about humans, of course, is that we are fully bipedal, which means that the hands are freed for intentional movements. And we can do lots of things with our hands. In fact, we still do it while we're talking. (laughs) Um, And so the hands are a very flexible instrument for, for mapping onto our thoughts. So that's why I think it probably began as a, as a gestural system, a so bodily movement system. So it
0: began as a game of charades. Yes. Right. Yes, indeed. So mm. actually, having played charades many times, I can kind of see how we might have progressed from that. Yes. The need to progress yes. from that. It's a
1: terrible game, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> okay. Exactly. But mm.
0: so you say that um, so essentially, walking upright freed our hands. and We didn't need to use them to move anymore. Right. Okay. So what's the next step? So we start to use them to pantomime. Yes. Why do we progress from that? So
1: we, we we do more than pantomime, of course. I mean, you can you can uh, you can pantomime walking, but you can also make walking with your fingers. I mean, you can do things with your hands that are not directly a pantomime. Mm-hmm. So you can use um, the hands to sort of ve- um, make shapes and so forth. Uh, you can use it to point, to point to things. Uh, so the hands probably come first in my view. Um, but then, of course, I think it probably. You then got to explain how it became speech. And one of the problems that I've had in trying to develop that is to explain how it went from a visual mode, hands, to an auditory mode. How could such a dramatic step have taken place? I think it probably went via the face, uh, because um, the face is also fairly expressive. So you can kind of make facial movements to go along with, uh, with manual movements. And I think speech is the ultimate facial gesture. So what, what speech is, is gesturing with your mouth. You're moving your tongue and your larynx and your lips, uh, and th- they are gestures. But the problem is, how do, you, how do you get the audience to perceive those gestures? And the way you do that is you run sound through it. So the, the vocal system runs sound through the mouth, and the sound varies as a function of the gestures you're making. So you, uh, you can... Uh, with your lips, for example, you go ba, pa, or your tongue is involved, it alters the sound, and that's what we call speech. But I think it's still gestural. And I think it went from the hands to the face to the mouth in what I call a process of um, miniaturization. So it was much more efficient in the long run to use the mouth, because then your hands are freed up again. Uh, So we we evolved the capacity to use our mouth to make all these gestures to refer to things in the world, or things we did yesterday, or tomorrow, or whatever. Now, initially, it has to be carried by what you might call pictorial representation. So a a pantomime actually sort of repeats an action that might have happened. And it's pictorial, you can understand it. Um, But over the course of time, it becomes what we call conventionalized. So, through society, we learn that certain gestures respond to certain things, even if they don't look like them. So, we, we, through um, conventionalization, we, we learn that different sounds that we make are associated with different objects or t- actions in the world. That has to be carried by society. It has to be, so, it's no longer pictorial, but it's still, that's what we do.
0: Actually, and you see this happening. So as you're saying this, I'm thinking of games that uh, that I play with my family where, you know, you might have... Like, we've got a... We're big fans of Lego. And so we play these sort of creationary games with Lego or, you know, drawing things. And you get... At a certain point during the game, you get to the bit where somebody can just start putting two blocks together, and that's it. You've, the, your partner yep. has got it, because it's almost like you're on the... You know, yeah, you've, you're you you starting to do the sort of miniaturisation thing. That's a lovely yeah.
1: example. I wish I'd known about it. <laughs> <laughs> use that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I can yeah, It also happens, by the way, in sign language. Mm. There's now some sign languages that have I- developed in signing communities only over the last few decades. And they start by being very pictorial, and they get more and more conventionalized and simplified. So there's a natural process, I think, in... in, in
0: and you talk about some of those in your book, actually. Yeah, so yeah. Can you describe some of them? Because they're really... They're I hadn't really thought about them until I until I read them. You know, They're I can't
1: quite remember the detail, but there's one that refers to the home or something? Yeah. I forgot. I you you have to find it, it for I will me. find them. You carry on so talking. I will, I will find <laughs> these examples. So, so, so sign language itself becomes much simpler uh, uh, and, and more efficient, but less pictorial. And, of course, speech itself is has virtually no pictorial uh, component. A little bit, by the way. I mean, some words have a kind of pictorial notion, like the word you. you, you stick out the tongue and say you or me, uh, so you points forward to the person you're talking to and me is back to yourself, me, mm-hmm. uh, and there are lots of sort of examples of that in speech, but they're not good enough to carry the message, which means that we can't understand other people's languages, and I think the other thing about converting it to speech or conventionalized forms is it then becomes secret. So uh, our language is secret from all uh, people who have all other languages. So it's a kind of bonding mechanism uh, whereby we keep foreigners out because they speak funny uh, and we can only communicate with people in our own group. And that's why I think there are 6,000 languages in the world. Uh, It's partly a bonding thing but partly a secrecy thing and quite dangerous in some ways, I think. Mm -hmm. So as a species, we are not only social, but we're antisocial <laughs> in the sense that we sort of keep other groups separate from ourselves.
0: I found the example, Oh. page 144. Oh. That, so this is the good thing about a scientist writing a book, it's because there's an index.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I can that.
0: <laughs> I can find it. Um, so you say, in American sign language, the sign for home was once a combination of the sign for eat, which is a bunched hand touching the mouth, and the sign for sleep, which is a flat hand on the cheek. Now it consists of two quick touches on the cheek, both with a... Bunched hand shape, so the ori- original iconic components are effectively lost. It's very clever.
1: And I'd forgotten it completely. Thank yeah, no,
0: it's very clever. <laughs> 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 um, anyway, so where were we? So we've talked about um, so the gesturing, the move to the to move to the, the mouth. You've done some shown a nice how it sort of miniaturises. Um, tell us a little bit about what was so important though about freeing the hands. Why this was something that was, that was sort of retained, I guess, or an well, advantage.
1: Well, because you're not using the hands for locomotion. They're, they're out there as a device you can use to communicate with. I think that, that's about the strength of it.
0: But in your And you also have
1: a sort of intentional control. I mean, you have a perfect control of what you do with your hands, with your fingers and so forth. So they're a wonderful system for creating different movements to represent the different things that are in our heads.
0: But they're also now free to yep. start building things. Yes. Well, that's right. So the the
1: other question about how language relates to tool manufacture and Mm. tool use. So uh, once you get language out of the way of the hands and into the mouth, then you can use the hands for constructing things. And at the same time, of course, you can explain with the mouth what you're doing. Mm. So I think it's a wonderful combination in a way. So tool use, the other aspect of human uh, existence is the capacity to make things. And that's just as generative, if you like, as languages. So uh, we're able to sort of manufacture vast numbers of things, just as we're able to use vast numbers of words and ideas. So I think the, the freeing of the hands, uh, first of all, allowed us to communicate gesturally, but when we replaced it with speech, or mostly replaced it with speech, here am I gesturing, um, <laughs> then the hands could be freed up for all sorts of other mischief.
0: <laughs> um so you didn't really uh talked about the gesturing which is very much your um clearly how you believe this uh, this comes along but I guess the other the other uh line of thinking is that it comes from sound right yes than gesture. yes yes so can you tell us a little bit about that and why you think that's what well, the the
1: alternative is? theory is i mean animals make lots of calls birds make lots of sounds and sequences of sounds so you might have thought that's where that's where language came from I think the, the there are several problems with that. One is it's pretty hard to map the sounds that animals make or we make onto the world because there's not a natural relation between what we're saying and what we're conveying right um, whereas you can with the gesture you can convey it naturally, and we can even sort of draw pictures in in um, in in, um, in space with your hands. So that's why I think it's more natural that it began as a gestural system. The other thing is, when people tried to teach chimpanzees to speak, it failed. And the chimpanzees that are now quite good at language do so with gesture. So they quickly abandoned the idea of trying to get a um, uh, chimpanzee to talk. Uh, instead, they, first of all, they were teaching a few chim- There are only a few out there, but uh, chimpanzees' forms of sign language. And the chimps got quite good at that. They weren't good enough to make complicated sentences, but they could sort of get ideas across. And eventually it was done with a kind of iPad. So the chimpanzees faced with it with a large screen with lots of symbols on it. <laughs> and the chimpanzee-cansey uh, in the US will point to things in sequence uh, to communicate them. So if you just look at what chimpanzees can do, uh, they can certainly emit sounds, emotional sounds, or, 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 or calls of various kinds. But they can't sort of voluntarily produce sequences to express things they haven't expressed before, so that's why I think that's one reason to think that um, it started gesturally. The other reason is sign language itself, because we very easily and naturally revert to signing if we can't speak. Um, If if you go to a foreign country and you can't. Speak the language. What do you do? You you start gesturing, and you can get your idea across that way. So it's kind of there. I think it was the original way of communicating, uh, but um, we've largely replaced it with speech.
0: So you mentioned uh, the using a an iPad to for these uh, chimps to start communicating. Um, what do you feel about? Uh, so we seem to be entering a, a sort of technological technological age where we're doing much more on devices, uh, all our tweeting and our, right. our texting and things. So, I guess, are we moving away from the speech and back to the gesturing and what, what might happen?
1: Well, I think language is multimodal anyway. I mean, it doesn't have to be speech and it doesn't have to be gesture, it can be done on machines. And in a sense, we're, we're reverting to gesture. Um, the, watch kids on their cell phones texting. They're gesturing with their thumbs, right? Mm. So I think we're going to have uh, enlarged thumbs in about a million <laughs> years' time, and speech will be gone. So, so can you see
0: any disadvantages to have? Like, w- what will happen if we have enlarged thumbs? What will be the things? Or would it be an
1: advantage? A huge advantage in the sense that you could instantly have a, uh, have a conversation with somebody in London. <laughs> so this distance problem is, is, right. is, is overcome. So, <laughs> so speech is kind of um, uh, limited by distance. I mean, right. the telephone helped, of course. Uh, so technology keeps coming in, which enhances our ability to communicate with computers and iPads and iPhones and whatever. And I think one of the big advantages is precisely that distance. We can communicate with anybody anywhere
0: mm. so um that 's I guess really the essence of your book, really that um, you know the, the, the language is, uh, is, sort of biological the steps of biological uh, or biological steps uh, in time, and that your belief that it comes through gestures which you 've certainly pre- presented a very uh, compelling case for. So I guess um, before we move on to doing some questions from the audiences, I have some questions for you. Uh, and they're sort of, so the first one is really about about uh, you as a scientist, I guess, um, and the research that you've done over your career. What's been your favourite experiments that you and your lab have done?
1: <sighs>
0: <laughs> and, uh, and it's kind of a bit like probably asking you to pick your favourite child, but... Are there... or maybe not? I don't know. Well,
1: (laughs) I I don't know whether I have got a... I'm a bad experimenter, I think. I mean, I lose the data and things like that. (gasps) (laughs) I think my favourite area of experiment... For a long time I worked with, with brain asymmetry. And I got into this game partly because we know that the right hand is controlled by the left side of the brain. And the right hand is the dominant hand when we do things and even when we gesture. Uh, and the left side of the brain also controls language. So it seemed to me a long time ago that there had to be a connection between speech and, and, and manual action uh, because it's the left side of the brain that does these things. Uh, am I allowed to tell a story about uh, my, my granddaughter? I was explaining this to my, <laughs> to, my, to my granddaughter, who was age seven at the time, and I explained that the left side of the brain is pretty important. It does language and it also, you know, does meaningful gestures, and it seems to be more involved in tool manufacture. And I said to her, what do you think the right side of the brain does? And she said, oh, she said, it just lasers about.
0: way, <laughs> <laughs> they're a bit lopsided. Um, so, okay, so, talking Well, sorry.
1: About I, uh, <laughs> I didn't quite answer your question yet. Uh, I think one of the most pleasing uh, experiences I had in life was, was testing split-brain patients. And these are people um, in the States and, and to some extent in Italy who'd had their brains cut in half. And that was for the relief of epilepsy, cutting the, the main... Uh, connection between the two sides of the brain. And um, it was for the relief of epilepsy. I mean, in cases, some cases of epi- epilepsy, if they're extreme, they were unable to lo- the, the, locate the focus of the epilepsy. And so they decided, well, we'll cut the brain in half, and that'll stop the brain from seizing as a whole. And in fact, it was remarkably successful. But of course, it leaves you with a person whose two sides of the brain are not in communication. So I was uh, lucky enough to get involved in, in that kind of research, looking, using um, various techniques to ask questions of one or other side of the brain. Probably my favourite experiment was one on, on, on mental rotation. And this is the ability to imagine things in different orientations from what they are. It's a, an act of imagination. So if I show you a particular letter of the alphabet, you can turn it around and see it mm. in its upright state. And we tested that with one of the split brain patients. And only his right brain could do it. His left brain couldn't. And that sort of began to show us that, well, the right brain doesn't just laze about.
0: <laughs> but uh, how, do you, how do you do those experiments?
1: Well, w- <laughs> do you really want to know? Yeah. Yeah. Well. yeah sorry. Well, it's yeah, d- quite
0: indulge me for a couple of minutes. How, yeah, how yeah, do yeah. you do
1: that? Well, well the, the simplest way to do is you get the, 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 the split brain person to fixate on a point. And everything that's flashed on one or other side... If you look at my, my face, for example, everything over here is on your le- left, right? <laughs> so it goes to the right side of your brain. And everything over here goes to the left side of your brain, if you're just looking at me. So we, we flash letters up on a screen, which either go to one side of the brain or the other. Now, it turns out that if a letter is backwards, the letter R is, is in reverse, you can't tell, it, tell that it's in reverse unless you rotate it to the upright. So an upside down, I say, you can't really tell, that's backwards. So this is a test of a people's ability to mentally rotate things in space. That their minds turn it around. So what we did is we flashed letters in, in different orientations, either forwards or backwards. And so we simply got the split brain patient to press buttons as to whether they were forward or backward. And they could only do it when they were over here. Mm. They couldn't do it when they were over there. So the, the left side of the brain, the language side of the brain, uh, was unable to do that, but the non-language side of the brain could. Uh,
0: so, related to that, you were talking about that reminded me, so I'm going to go back to Lego and my family again, sorry about this. Um, I noticed, so my daughter and I uh, build things together quite a lot, and um, we've been sort of freestyling mostly recently, but we used to do a lot of kits. So when, you, everybody must know this about Lego, but you get a set of instructions, and it has where each of the next set of bricks go. And I noticed that we look at the instructions in a very different way. So I place them, I can't remember, we, we basically do the opposite to each other. That I place the instructions in a certain way and that means as I'm building it, I can see like it's building the way it looks on the, on the, sh- on the, sh- on the page. Whereas my daughter does it the complete opposite. Like she puts the page to the opposite direction of how she's building it. And then that looks, it's real. But then, so I pointed this out to my husband and he just looked at me like I was crazy. So he does the same thing as her. And but, so I'm not sure whether it's me that's like, but we obviously think quite differently and we visualize it differently in order to build. So, so maybe we've got some slight different.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think, I think we all differ in, in these things to some extent. And I think some people tell me they, they, they can't do mental rotations or they can't sort of do mental gymnastics, if you like, uh, rearranging the furniture in their room mentally to see how it would look <laughs> if it's around. So I think there's certainly individual differences here. I don't, I can't quite explain what it is you're doing differently from you.
0: Yeah, I, so daughter, I, yes, I'm not sure whether I'm the one doing the mental gymnastics that unnecessarily, or whether it's them. But we'll, we'll have to go home and have that, do that experiment, I think, because I'm quite curious to why, yeah, how we did that. We'll anyway. have to work on this,
1: I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there anything else about the left brain, right brain that um, that are sort of uh, either interesting stories or um, things that you can tell us?
1: Well, I, I mean, the, the, I think the split brain stuff was the most interesting because you've got the most dramatic way of being able to compare the two sides of the brain without their talking to each other. Uh, although, the more I worked on it, the more I discovered that there were ways they could talk subcortically, so that some things do get across between do- two disconnected uh, brains because it kind of goes through the more emotional centres lower down. So that, that um, the, the, the patient I used to test most was, was a guy, a young, young boy, and he was very bright. He had an IQ of 120 or something. Uh, but he was reputed to have been asked when he woke up from the operation how he was feeling. He said, oh, I feel fine, except, the, he said, except I've got a splitting headache. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, more
1: recently, of course, we, the split brain operation has more or less stopped. I mean, they, mm-hmm. there's one or two cases I can get back to. Uh, in Recent years in Italy where they're still doing it. Uh, but it tends to be much less dramatic now. They will try to just cut part of the... Uh, connections, not all of them, uh, to to do it in a more focused fashion. So more recently, most of the stuff we do is actually with brain imaging, putting mm-hmm. people in a scanner and seeing which bits of sides of the brain light up for various things. We get them to do.
0: Okay, I before I hand over to the audience, I'm going to ask my last question, and that is, uh, we are at a writers' festival, um, so this is all about books. Uh, the last book that you read?
1: Goodness me, do you know? I think it was The Life of Oscar Wilde.
0: <laughs> Not a detective novel at all? <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. It was a bit of a detective novel. My, my father, my family came from um, Ireland, mm-hmm. so it was the same sort of milieu, I think, that Oscar Wilde had grown up in. So I,
0: and are you reading anything at the moment?
1: Am I reading anything at the moment? I don't think I am, actually. No.
0: OK. Mm. We should send you upstairs mm. to the... Yeah. <laughs>
1: I, I, I think reading uh, destroys the mind, I don't... Uh,
0: LAUGHTER <laughs> Um, we hope that you've enjoyed the session, and if you can please join me in thanking Michael um, very much. Thank you. Our 2017 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud, and on our website writersfestival.co.nz